Today, we'll talk about a brave English woman who changed the landscape of the nursing profession till this day. We will hear a more personal side to her story and things that we might not necessarily hear about our heroine. We'll also talk about the war that set the precedent for the First World War. I hope you enjoy. Imagine that you're in a large, dark hall. The stinky smell of blood fills the air. There are countless of wounded, suffering soldiers on the cracked stone floor, and there aren't enough bandages to take care of them. There aren't enough supplies or medication either, and sanitary and cleanliness standards are almost nowhere to be seen. The old sewage system can be smelled in the old building made into a temporary barrack hospital. This is the Crimean War. Soldiers' excrements are left in the same place that they sleep. Undertrained nurses and surgeons take care of them. Soldiers die in masses, mostly from infections and disease. It's 1853 when the Crimean War broke out between the Russians and Turkey. By 1854, France, Britain, and Sardinia joined forces with the Turks for reasons of their own. They, too, were concerned of having Russia try to invade their countries, among other opinions. Napoleon III, nephew and heir of Napoleon I, fancied going head-to-head with some of the other emperors, destroy Russia, and cozy up to their British ally, Queen Victoria. A victory would raise the gloire, or morale, since the French army was still tainted by the Duke of Wellington, the defeat in Waterloo in 1815. But the Duke now lay still in British soil and had left no heirs, leaving Napoleon III with a renewed hope to conquer and control yet again. In the Crimean War, the Russians tried to instill their control both in landmass and religious goals on the territory called Danube, now Romania, which had been under Turkey's ruling at the time. While the Turks and the French geared up their war machines, the British Parliament was not as happy to join the party, apparently. The new British Prime Minister Lord Aberdeen, a veteran of war himself, was a pacifist and believed that this war could be solved with diplomacy, as did most of his cabinet. They also feared Louis Bonaparte, Napoleon's nephew, who they thought was interested in adventure and new conquest and would start another war with Britain. Public opinion, with the help of Lord Palmerston in the British Parliament, the Foreign Secretary with grudges against Russia, changed the landscape of politics in favor of war with Russia. Palmerston secretly sent a note to Louis Bonaparte himself congratulating him on the new hold he had on the French government and encouraged him to war. Palmerston was soon forced to resign as foreign minister when this was found out, and this had further consequences we won't get into. There are many mixed opinions about the cause for this war and what brought Britain into the picture. Some say that Britain did indeed want to go to war since they wanted to dampen Russia's chance for dominance. But there is one thing for certain, at least. One thing that is unquestionably true about the Brits' reluctance to go to war. Something that the public did not know. The army was in complete shambles. Their structure was divided, inefficient, 
and riddled with soldiers that could buy their rank with easy money. They were inexperienced, and the ones who did participate in the war at Waterloo in 1815 were old and tired. Nevertheless, the blithely unaware, ready-for-some-glory public made their opinion clear. The liberal middle class, an ever-strengthening power, alongside the emerging educated working class, strapped in to protect an anti-Christian dictatorship against the big bully Russia. This war was a chance for the Brits to put their stamp on the Victorian era. Sixty years of blue-collared generals had trained their young fighters for this moment. They had ordered expensive, impressive new red uniforms and raised taxes for their next promotion. They were ready. They would win. And they really would. Of course, with some help from their allies. Many, many would die on all sides. And the sport of death seems quite foolish to me when looking at the numbers of totaling to more than a million deaths. The amount of fatherless children, husbandless wives, and opportunities for peace were left strewn on the sidelines in heaps of sorrow. In Skutari, near Istanbul of Turkey, where the Allied British stayed at this hospital, a soldier would see a week go by without receiving an ounce of medical care. Now, this is where our heroine comes into this story. A slender young woman of about 30, hardened with years of fights about her chosen path with her family and her complex personal goals, set out to change the rising death rate, the situations of disease, and help those in need. Florence Nightingale was a daughter of wealthy parents of the English upper class. She decided to abandon the proms, the tea parties, and the other societal conventions of her time and status, and instead pursue a career that was considered to be a very lowly rank in the dirtiest, most disease-infested places aside from sewage work, nursing. In those times, Sanitary and hygiene laws, like the cleaning of one's hands or sheets for every new patient, was unheard of in many places in the world. In Victorian England, the upper class was meant to be served, not to serve others. So it wouldn't be a surprise if I'd tell you that Florence Nightingale's mother, Fanny, was quite displeased with her choice in career. There was no high social standing for those who did, choose a career like this. Take a governess who takes care of aristocratic children who are paid for their work, but have no inherited money or land. Nightingale's family was seriously opposed to her pursuing this career. At the time she had expressed this desire to them and received their negative reaction, her father was quoted saying that she walked around the house like a ghost for days. This issue left the whole Nightingale family distraught and depressed, with a feeling that they had nowhere to turn. Society would look down upon them, for their eldest daughter, who had the potential to be an intelligent housewife with healthy kids romping around the house, did not seem like it was an option for her at all. These were patriarchal times, and if Florence would not marry, she would receive very little inheritance from her father, if anything at all. If her father would pass away suddenly, 
all of their assets and wealth would go to her aunt's husband on her father's side, and Florence's sister, mother, and herself would potentially be left with what they would consider as nothing at all. She turned down a proposal for marriage from a man that had courted her for six years, a man that she truly cared for. But she didn't want his financial help as an excuse to save some hard work and would remain unmarried for her whole life. She kept the letter of his acceptance to her decision not to marry him for the rest of her life. Just to mention her parents' reaction to her turning down this letter would take a few pages or more, so I will leave that up to you to discover. Florence's father, William Edward Nightingale, also known as Wen for short, was an exceptional Victorian man. He made sure to educate both his daughters himself in all important subjects, such as physics, mathematics, history, literature, Latin, and other languages. Thanks to him, Florence and her sister Parthenope, or Parth for short, were highly educated female individuals and gained a broad understanding in many different fields. Florence was an excellent student, particularly in math. Whenever they would go traveling, her sister and herself would study the languages of the countries they would go to, especially German and Italian, and would keep journals filled with sketches and detailed descriptions of the places they went, something that would later be sent as letters to the servants back home. William Nightingale's aristocratic great-uncle had no children, so his entire estate was inherited to his nephew, William Shore, on the condition that he would continue his name. So William Shore became William Nightingale, and the Nightingale family was well-established in British society. They originated from a generation of bankers and were a family that was involved in the international spice trade with the British colonies. Now, Florence always had a large appetite for learning. She never was keen on participating in societal conventions and parties like her mother and sister seemed to enjoy. Fanny Nightingale always had a hope to reach the very high circles of English politics, and since her husband had tried once to be elected into the political circles and failed, she hoped that her daughters would marry into those one day. Parth was out of the question in regards to that. Although she was attractive and intelligent, an illness she was inflicted with when she was a baby made her mental health unstable and dependent on her family members for the rest of her life. There is quite a bit of evidence that she had a serious mental illness that caused her to have frequent bouts of hysteria. This left Florence as the only option to marry, since no suitor had ever suggested a courtship to Parthenope. I believe that this caused a lot of jealousy and ill-being between the two sisters, since this was all Parth wanted and couldn't have, and that was exactly what Florence looked at as an interference and could very well have if she so wished, since suitors were always at the door for her and were turned down. Many times, Parth accused her father for favoring Florence over her. William Nightingale put a lot of emphasis on the importance of study, but there is no evidence for that. Her sister, on the other hand, many times threw her into the shade, 
and could be very unkind and condescending to her. Despite Parth's illness, she was cheerful, affectionate, artistic, intelligent, and easy to love. Parth was much more interested in the arts. She was a talented painter and sketcher, and was most likely very good with her hands in other forms of art popular in her time, like embroidery. William was frustrated with her inability to study as Flo did, but we also know that Flo's ability in this matter were well beyond average. She was always extremely focused and hardworking. There was a time in which their house had a small flu epidemic. Flo and the cook were the only ones healthy to take care of the rest of the household, including the servants. In one of her letters to her father, she writes that she woke up every day at four in the morning to finish a few hours of concentrated study before taking care of her house patients for the rest of that day. Now, I believe that one of the reasons she was so invested in subjects such as studying was that she did not want to let her mind wander elsewhere. In her youth, Flo describes having disturbing dreams that seemed to have had erotic content. She was deeply ashamed of those dreams and felt it was a sin to receive enjoyment from any. Now we must remember that the time and place she was in was an era in which it truly was considered a sin to do so. Her private journals are filled with concern about these dreams, for she had such a huge resistance to marrying because she wanted to reach goals that were practically unattainable if she were to marry. In regards to those dreams, we know that she would try to make herself so tired that she would fall asleep the minute her head would touch the pillow so that she would not dream of those dreams ever. She would keep this information mostly to herself and to her journal and would make a storm with her choices in career instead. Fanny Nightingale was horrified to learn that her beautiful daughter planned to work in such manual degrading labor as nursing was considered at the time. In the beginning, she did almost everything in her power to stop her daughter, including threats to disinherit her. Her father tried to stay neutral, but did not support her decision either, especially when he was putting so much effort in trying to find her a suitor. Florence was told that she could nurse but with conditions, like only being able to nurse Parthenope or the poor people of London. Parth despised the idea of Florence being different than her and of her ambitions. She put a lot of pressure on Florence to leave her job as a nurse on many occasions, one of which she was able to get Flo to sail to the hot springs of Scotland in the middle of her work by threatening her that she would commit suicide if she would not come. And no amount of letters between them would calm her down. At some point, Florence's mother even asked her to quit her career for her sister's sake and sanity. When another serious argument broke out between the sisters, Parth threw a vase at her and also the bracelet around her wrist that signified their friendship in Flo's face. Flo was devastated, but despite her sister's attempts at sabotaging her work with temper tantrums and hateful letters, 
She did not give up on her dream. It continued towards the work she believed God had called upon her to do, to save people's lives. In 1851, her mother and sister agreed that she would go to Kaiserwerth Hospital in Germany to train as a nurse, under the condition that she would not tell a soul the real reason for her going there. She had to lie, observing the way the sick were taken care of by the pastor Theodor Fliedner and the deaconesses there was a real turning point in Flo's life. The four months that she stayed there gave her the strong foundation she needed for her nursing career. She issued her findings anonymously in 1851 as her first published work called The Institution of Kaiserwerth on the Rhine for the practical training of deaconesses, etc. Two years later, Nightingale took the post of superintendent at the Institute for the Care of Sick Gentlewomen in Upper Harley Street in London for two years. Although her mother and sister were still deeply opposed, her father began to support her financially, giving her an amount of money per month that would allow her to live comfortably on her own. In the cold November of 1854, Florence Nightingale, along with 38 female volunteers that she herself had trained in nursing, one of them being her good friend and family member, Aunt Mai Smith, were brought across the Black Sea from England to Turkey to assist the wounded. Florence was a strong-willed character who was appointed superintendent of the Scutari Hospital very quickly. She enforced new policies of hand cleaning, sheet and clothing changing and washing, and the cleaning of patients' excrements from their beds. She wrote letters to different sources to receive more support for the hospital, and was granted improvements such as better sewage and ventilation that allowed the people to breathe clean, non-contaminated air relatively. Despite improvements, the summer was tough since disease, vermin, and bacteria were harder to kill in the heat. Masses of patients and one of their best surgeons died from cholera since there was a contamination of waste in their water supply. With her training in mathematics she received from her father, Nightingale designed something we now call a coxcomb, similar to a pie chart but more intricate. It allowed her to represent the causes of patients' death and other complex information, all layered on one single page, in a statistical manner. In her early years, she showed a very high aptitude to collecting historical data, and math was no exception. Before infographics and pie charts existed, she made data not only beautiful by color-coding the information, but also extremely practical. Suddenly, medical personnel could see the bigger picture of what was going on in their hospital and help them make more educated decisions about their patients. Ultimately, this helped this hospital reform its ways of operation and create much better chances of survival. It intrigues me as an avid reader and researcher myself that it was very hard indeed to find information about this side of her work. In my opinion, there may still be prejudice about women in the mathematical fields of study, and perhaps doubt about their contributions in this area. Nevertheless, her work in statistics led her to being the first woman 
to be elected to the Royal Statistical Society, among others. However, there are many people who talk in the negative of Nightingale's approach to managing the hospital. Numerous nurses felt that she was being too harsh towards them. She was very strict and set down many rules that others felt were too stringent, like not being able to drink alcohol before a shift or fraternizing with the male employees. It may be that her strong hold on order was what had allowed the hospital to rise from its constant waiting and constant deaths from dysentery, cholera, typhus, and other diseases. Stefan Paget, a famous and influential biologist of the time, wrote in his book Dictionary of National Biography that Nightingale had lowered the death rate from 42 to 2% in the Scutari Hospital. Now, I don't believe she achieved this feat alone. She did work with a team. But her 20-hour workdays, her constant work to advocate for and receive better conditions, and her ability to lead a many times unwilling group of undertrained nurses and medical personnel are remarkable achievements, especially with such high pressure that worked against her. Nightingale would make a habit of going between all the patients with a lamp to show her the way in the dark night and give words of comfort and wisdom to those who were suffering. She became known as the Lady with the Lamp. These things were advertised all over Britain. This was the war that had the most amount of documentation. It had telegraph, it had phone, it had a lot of photography. Things that didn't exist in previous wars. Others called her the angel with the lamp. There were cases in which she sat near a soldier's bed and would keep him company until the last hours of his life had gone, to help him have an easier transition. Many people said that Nightingale had a fierce, determined look to her eyes, but her smile was also remembered. She was present in most of the surgeries conducted by the doctors, and would help out many times. The doctors looked at this habit of hers with contempt, and would feel like this was no place for a woman to see this amount of blood, especially when they were doing amputations. For most of the time, these surgeries were done without sedation or anesthesia, including cataract surgery for the eyes. The doctors felt like she was sticking her nose where it didn't belong, and that she was trying to take their job away from them. Despite their bitter resentment towards her gender, Nightingale had a natural talent to lead the men as superintendent of the hospital. In fact, she had much more problems with the women personnel. Many looked at her as cruel and cold. She said herself, 40 women living closely packed in narrow quarters under new discipline and in a barrack, women too, whose tempers and habits are unknown, present great obstacles to management, end quote. The women mainly had three problems with Nightingale. She wasn't married and had no interest in it. Moreover, she knew that a key problem to hiring educated middle-class women in public hospitals was inappropriate sexual conduct and relations between the female nurses and medical personnel who were male. The majority of the nurses deeply hated this, for they felt it was their right to consort with whomever they wished, and use this as a way to climb up the social ladder if they were to marry a doctor that had struck their fancy. 
Flo was determined to prevent the other women from forming sexual relations with the males. Victorian England found the image of a young nurse taking care of a wounded soldier on the brink of death as highly erotic and appealing. We know that there were some women who did not refrain from seducing the men who came back from war injured and suffering and looking for treatments. I have no idea if those men really did have a problem with that, to tell you the truth. It could be said that Florence Nightingale was ahead of her time, not only in matters of health and hygiene conduct, but also in a code of ethics that fought to keep love and sex out of the workplace. She certainly sent women who had too much of a taste for too many drinks and uncontrolled sexual misconduct away. Secondly, Florence disliked the way most women of her class looked at themselves as privileged. She held respect for those who were hardworking, sensible, truthful, and proactive, regardless of their status or class. One example to illustrate this was her close relationship with Elizabeth Roberts, a woman of no special class but of exceptional expertise and experience in healthcare and surgical practice, a true rare gem. She was a pioneering nurse whom Nightingale could finally learn from. Senior medical officer Dr. Crookshanks commended Robert's skill, but refused to let her work on his service. Even Aunt Mai Smith in her letters back home to the Nightingale-Smith family showed hints of jealousy towards her. The third reason for women disliking Nightingale was her religious philosophy, which was very different from her contemporaries and tended to clash. When a group of Angelican sisters came to Scutari to help with the masses of injured soldiers, their religious differences and upper-class attitudes grated on Nightingale's nerves. The Angelican sisters refused to be regarded as nurses, but as ladies. They would also ignore the other nuns that worked alongside Nightingale in great cooperation, and would interfere the nurses in a very condescending way. Nightingale found it hard to even be polite towards them, since they wanted to be angels of mercy instead of actually be a practical helping hand. Indeed, although Nightingale was Angelican Christian on the outset, one of the reasons British Parliament even sent her out to Scutari in the first place, she did not share the sisters' approach in saving the men's souls first before their bodies to help pave their way to heaven. As Reverend Sidney Godolphin Osborne put it, those who walked that field of suffering had too many pressing calls on every energy which could be enlisted to save pain to the boy to stop to question the faith of the sufferers. It was not the least frightful of the many features of that awful scene that the demand for active physical help did sadly interfere with the aid which would have been cheerfully given in other matters. We all did what we could in both, but this was a hospital. Miss Nightingale and her staff were nurses, cooks, purveyors. There were not, they could not be, but in a very minor degree, missionaries. End quote. On the other hand, Nightingale was very close to five Roman Catholic nuns who came from a convent in England. One of them, Reverend Mother Mary Claire Moore, became Nightingale's chief lieutenant. She was hardworking, well-educated, and proved to be a trustworthy companion, as did her team, 
personifying the nursing virtues Nightingale held dear, and she saw them as an example for other women. With these experiences behind her, Nightingale created the first secular training school for nurses in England. Today, new nurses pledge the Nightingale Pledge, and there is a medal on her name. Nightingale wrote one of the first books for practical nursing ever sold to the public. It was called Notes on Nursing, What It Is and What It Is Not. It went viral. Nightingale was a revolutionary woman who not only fought against mainstream society's idea of what she could or could not pursue, but also fought her family's paradigms, risking her whole identity and status in doing so. She fought gender differences in her career and brought inspiration, encouragement, and a new era for women in healthcare. She worked on softening laws against women working in prostitution, helped hunger relief in India, created sanitary laws and procedures in the places she worked, lowered the death rate by almost half in the Scutari Hospital, and was a strong and capable leader. She embarked on a path fraught with danger, politics, male dominance, and other challenges to give one another chance at life. She was human, like the rest of us, and no doubt her mistakes may not be less big than her achievements. But the one thing we can commend her for is her strong will, her love for humanity, and her dedication to the health and well-being of people other than herself. Thank you. I'd love to hear your feedback. Write to my email, my, spelt M-A-Y, loves, L-O-V-E-S, peace, P-E-A-C-E, at gmail.com.